Hi, and welcome to Better Than New, the podcast to help you find a cool used car, truck, or SUV at a price you'll love. I'm your host, Gary Crenshaw, and today is the fourth and final episode of my month-long Little Weirdos 4x4 Edition podcast special featuring four small, fun-to-drive, and affordable used 4x4s from the 80s and 90s. Sadly, these three-quarter size short wheelbase SUVs have completely disappeared from America's new car showrooms. But they're still really popular on the used car market today, so that's why I dedicated an entire month to tell you about some of the best examples. In week one, I reviewed the Geo Tracker, which is actually a rebadged Suzuki sidekick. In week two, I reviewed the fun to say but hard to find Daihatsu Rocky another tough and rugged small body-on-frame 4x4 that was available here for only a short time. Too short, in fact, for most people to even remember it. And last week, you heard all about the Suzuki Samurai, sold in the U.S. from 1986 to 1995. Now, if you're looking for a small 4x4 SUV and you missed one or two of those previous episodes, be sure to check them out because all of these used four-wheel drive micro-adventure vehicles offer up serious fun for not a lot of money. And today's final Little Weirdo 4x4? Well, it's an off-road wonder sold by Dodge in the late 80s with a sibling that has a reputation for winning off-road rallies. And in just a moment, I'll tell you what it is and why you might want one. So hop in, buckle up, and let's go for a drive. Well, thanks again for checking out my Little Weirdos 4x4 edition special here on Better Than New over the past month. It's been really fun for me to go down memory lane, or should I say memory trail, reviewing these awesome SUVs from the 80s and 90s. Now, two of these wore their Japanese logos proudly, and two others were sold out of American new car showrooms. The Chevrolet showroom, in the case of the Geo Tracker, later called the Chevy Tracker, and the Dodge showroom for today's vehicle, the Dodge Raider, which was sold in the U.S. for model years 1987 to 1989, just three years. But I want to be clear that the four small SUVs I covered this past month, including the Raider, were all tough little SUVs imported from Japan. Now, if you were around and paying attention back in the 80s, you might remember that Dodge and Mitsubishi were tightly intertwined business partners. And in an effort to fill out their small car lineup at the time, Dodge rebadged many Mitsubishi vehicles as their own, including the Raider. Now, over on the Mitsubishi lot, you could buy the same basic 4x4 SUV in the form of the two-door Montero Sport. Now, Mitsubishi also sold a five-door wagon version of the Montero, but only the two-door was sold by Dodge under the Raider name. Now, later, Dodge did sell a pickup that they also called the Raider, but it was completely different vehicles. So if you come across one of those, it's not the same thing, okay? The Dodge Raider 4x4 from 87 through 89 is very unique, and it is basically a Mitsubishi Montero. Okay, so let's jump into the numbers on this little SUV. So like the other small 4x4s in this series, the Dodge Raider offered up specifications and performance that was slightly better than the others, but it wasn't exactly outstanding. I mean, all of these are kind of slow little boxy SUVs, right? Now, for example, when equipped with the 2.6 liter inline four-cylinder, buyers of that version got 109 horsepower and 142 pound-feet of torque. 
Now, this was considerably more than, say, the Suzuki Samurai, which had a 1.3-liter four-cylinder with half the displacement of the Raider and only 63 horsepower. But the smaller Suzuki weighed right around 2,100 pounds, compared to the Raider's approximately 3,200-pound weight. And that weight difference does negate some of the Raider's power advantage. But not completely, and in spite of that weight difference, the Raider should be about mm, 3 to 4 seconds quicker than the Samurai to 60 miles per hour, with the 5-speed manual. Now there is an optional 4-speed automatic, but that doesn't make the best use of the 4-cylinder Raider's power, so I don't recommend it. And you should expect to add maybe another second or two to a 0 to 60 time with an automatic transmission. Now, there was an optional engine in 1989, one year only, and that was a 3-liter V6. It made 143 horsepower and 168 pound-feet of torque. It's not a lot more horsepower and torque than the 4-cylinder, but it is more and it is welcome. If it was me, that would be the choice that I would make, but the 4-cylinder is not bad. Now, in a retro review by MotorWeek, they conducted a test of the Mitsubishi Montero, which is basically the sibling of the Raider. Same thing. However, they tested the five-door, which is the wagon. So it was bigger. It was heavier. It did have the V6, and it did have the four-speed automatic. And that particular vehicle went 0 to 60 in 13 seconds. But with the lighter weight of the two-door Raider slash Montero, combined with a more powerful V6 and, say, a five-speed manual transmission, you should expect to reduce that 0 to 60 time by maybe a second or two. Now, in terms of braking, the five-door Montero with a disc drum setup, just like the Raider, stopped in about 135 feet. And I would say that the five-door Montero probably would stop a little bit quicker, just because it has more weight in the back and it's not going to lift up as much. But let's assume for now that the braking's about the same. It wasn't bad. Handling's kind of the same thing, too. It's about as you would expect for a small 4x4 SUV. There was lots of roll going through the slalom, but it sticks to the road and it does just fine. It's what you would expect. Now, in terms of fuel economy, well, you know, like all of these, it's right around 20 miles per gallon. Now, the five-door Montero was rated at 17 city, 17 highway, but MotorWeek got 20 miles per gallon. The two-door Raider is actually rated a little bit higher, and I would, again, expect maybe high teens in the city and you know, 20, 21 on the highway. It's not going to be amazing. And if you opt for the V6, you're going to lose about one mile per gallon, maybe two over time. Now, in terms of looks, I really think the Dodge Raider looks great. They have a really nice boxy look to them that tapers off a little bit towards the top, like as you look at the side and profile. It's got some very good-looking sort of chunky proportions. Now, you look at it from the front. It's very upright. It's very business-like, as long as your business is, you know, doing rugged off-road 4x4 stuff. I really love the 7-inch round headlights and the blacked-out grille. Those look great. And there's plenty of room for extras like off-road lights or a winch on the bumper in the front. Now, the rear of the Raider reminds me of a Land Rover Discovery. It's got kind of that same look if you stand back about 20 feet and look at it. It also does have a swing-out door with a spare tire. It doesn't have a hatchback that lifts up. And that was common on all the Raiders, all the Monteros across the line. Now, inside, you're going to find kind of a very 80s sort of interior appointments. Sort of minimalist. It's got cloth seats. They're just fine. They're simple. There's a color-keyed carpet that matches. The front bucket seats are comfortable, 
But when you look at the dash, there's lots of plastic, lots of 90-degree angles and stuff. It kind of fits the boxy exterior styling, but it definitely is kind of an 80s look. And you know it's a serious off-roader because inside, there's a grab bar for the front passenger to hold on to as you're bouncing down the trail. There's also an extra gauge pod with a voltage meter, an oil pressure gauge, and something unusual but very 80s, an inclinometer. It's kind of like a artificial horizon in an airplane. And it shows how much the vehicle's leaning, whether it's side to side or forward and back. Again, a very 80s thing, but cool. So it's nice to have it. It's not really useful, but, you know, your mileage may vary. Like I said, it has bucket seats for the driver and passenger that are very comfortable. And the driver also gets a seat that's suspended. It's got its own suspension system for off-roading. There's a little knob on the side that you can adjust. So you can adjust it from firm to soft, but it actually makes it a softer ride for the driver. Now, it's driver only. I guess the passenger in the front has to suffer. And certainly the people in the back are going to suffer a little bit more because out back is a simple bench seat without headrests. Now, it's okay for like two people. Uh, Kids, you know, they're going to be fine. But adults, eh, you know, it's like 30 minutes, maybe an hour to a trailhead. And that's about all they're going to want to tolerate. You're not going to take full-size adults on a long trip in this car and keep them happy. You could do it. You could drive all the way across the country, but I don't recommend it. But frankly, for me, in terms of the back seat, what I really suggest is that you just fold it down. So it kind of folds down forward. And then you tumble it forward again for more storage space behind the seat. Or the other option, just take it out completely. Put that thing in the garage, set it up so you can drink beer in the garage watching a, your outdoor television set. But don't lose the seat, okay? Don't lose the seat. Don't leave it out forever. When you sell the vehicle, sell it with the seat. And make sure that when you buy one, it's got the bench seat in the back. They're really hard to come by in the aftermarket in terms of like trying to find one on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace. Just like the Samurai I mentioned last week, it's really hard to find those seats. So keep it with the vehicle, okay? Now, I've been talking about, you know, how it drives on the road, how comfortable it is, that sort of thing. But you don't buy one of these for its on-road prowess. It's okay. You know, you can drive it every day, but it's kind of a bumpy ride with its leaf spring suspension. I did mention earlier that the six-cylinder model does get a trailing arm rear suspension with coil springs. So if you get the six-cylinder, you actually get a better rear suspension, which is nice. Something to keep in mind. But again, it's kind of a bumpy ride no matter what. So you don't buy it for its on-road prowess. You buy a Dodge Raider for its capability off-road. You know, it's got a tough body-on-frame design. It's got the capable suspension I mentioned, the leaf springs for the four-cylinder, or the trailing arm with coil springs for the six-cylinder. And it's got a short wheelbase, so it's very maneuverable. And that's what led to the Raider's outstanding racing history. So the Dodge Raider is sold as the Mitsubishi Pajero in Japan. That's the name of the vehicle over there. Mitsubishi calls it the Montero here. They call it the Raider for Dodge, but it's the Pajero in Japan. And the Pajero has a long history of winning off-road rally races. So the Paris-Dakar rally from Paris to Dakar, Senegal, was a 6,000-mile multi-stage, multi-day off-road rally race that originally ran from Paris, France to Dakar, Senegal, and it pitted rally drivers in and on all manner of vehicles against the elements. If you think of the the Baja 1000, this was six times as long. It was really, really grueling for not only the drivers, but for the vehicles. So they had to be good. 
and the Dodge Raider, which was the Mitsubishi Pajero, was a great vehicle for the Dakar Rally. For nearly 24 years, from 1983 to 2007, Mitsubishi played a big part in that rally. In fact, a modified version of the Pajero, again, the Japanese version of the Montero and the Raider, won the famous Dakar Rally outright a total of 12 times. Now, the Pajero also set a Guinness World Record with 150 individual stage wins. Now, to put that into perspective, second place Peugeot had only 78 wins by comparison, so the Pajero's performance capability off-road was never really in question. Okay, so while the 1987 through 1989 Dodge Raider that you can buy here as a used vehicle isn't an exact copy of the Pajero that won the Dakar Rally back in the 80s, the racing version of the Pajero was based on the road-going Mitsubishi Montero and Dodge Raider. So that said, these things have really great off-road DNA just baked into the vehicle. So if you're looking for something like that, and I think you should put one of these on your list. They're hard to find, but definitely worth taking a look at. Um, what should you actually look for? Well, like for all the 4x4s I've reviewed in this series, condition is more important than anything else. It's condition, condition, condition. Always buy a vehicle in good condition. Now, the other choice you need to make is, do I want the inline four-cylinder version or do I want the V6? Well, here's something to think about. The V6 was only available the final year, 1989, okay? There's going to be more four-cylinders to choose from, so take that into consideration. The other thing to think about is, do I want the four-speed automatic or do I want the five-speed manual? Well, the five-speed manual makes better use of the power no matter which engine you have in the car, the four-cylinder or the V6. So I would personally opt for the five-speed manual if you can drive a manual transmission. If you need an automatic, I would try to stick with the V6. The V6 is going to work better with the four-speed automatic. You're not going to feel like you're driving some glacier slow vehicle down the road. They should both be fine off-road, but really the four-speed automatic works better with the V6. I would avoid it completely in the four-cylinder. That's just my personal opinion, but something to think about. Now, other things to look for, you know, typical stuff like low miles, minimal owners, no accidents, no rebuilt titles or salvage titles, that sort of thing. I would also get one that's as close to stock or stock as possible. They haven't made these since 1989. Now, there is some parts interchangeability with the Montero, which is good. That means that there's probably more parts available than, say, the Daihatsu Rocky, However, it's better to start with a complete vehicle that's in good condition than it is to pick up a project and then have to fix it. You don't want to have to go on a part search. Also, make sure it has all the factory parts like the bench seat in the back. Now, I mentioned that earlier, but you really want to make sure it has the bench seat. So many of these have had the seat taken out and somebody, I don't know, sold it, lost it. I don't know, how do you lose a seat? I don't know. Anyway, they didn't put it back in when they sold it. Sort of like, eh, whatever, you don't need it. And then it gets lost to time and you'll never find it. And if you do find one, it won't match. But the chances of you finding one is really, really low. So get one with a back seat. Another thing you want to do is make sure that everything works. Test the four-wheel drive system. Test the locking hubs. Remember, they're manual, so you have to get out and do it yourself. I think later they had automatic hubs. So maybe the V6 in 89 is going to have automatic front hubs. But... If there are manual locking, make sure that they work. 
Make sure everything works in the car. If it has air conditioning, make sure it works. Wipers, turn signals, make sure the automatic transmission shifts properly. Make sure the clutch isn't slipping. Do all of that sort of thing. You want to make sure all these things work because whatever price you pay, you want to make sure the vehicle is as functional as possible. Now, many of these were used as a tow-behind vehicle. It was towed behind something like an RV, for example. Um, Those might have higher miles, but if it really was towed a lot, those miles may be mileage that was built up on the car when the engine wasn't running. Now, they'd have to be able to prove that it was a tow-behind vehicle, and typically it's going to be set up to tow, right? It'll already have the mechanism in place that you can just attach it to your trailer hitch on the back of your RV, and if you're planning to do that and you find one that's already been set up that way, hey, you're going to save yourself you know, $1,000 or $1,500 to set that up. So definitely look for something like that if you're looking for a tow-behind version of this vehicle. Okay, so let's assume you found one, you want to buy it. How much should you pay? I would say, first of all, back to what I mentioned earlier, get a complete running fully functioning Dodge Raider. Don't buy a project. Unless you're like some crazy project person and you just want to, you know, rip out the engine and put in a V8 and transform the thing into something that's different than a Dodge Raider. Fine, go ahead and do that. But if you really just want a Dodge Raider, then don't buy a project. Get a complete running, fully functioning vehicle. Now that said, you might find something like that in say the three to $5,000 range. But below that, I would expect issues like rust or dents or missing parts, a lot of broken things, uh, certain parts that aren't functioning, the air conditioning doesn't work, maybe the windows don't roll down, you know, broken things inside and the interior. You want to avoid those vehicles, okay? So probably below $3,000, you are going to get that undesirable version. You could find something great. I'm not saying you won't. But more like three to five thousand, you're going to get kind of a rough driver, something that's okay. Now, occasionally you do get one of those amazing family hand-me-down deals where it was driven by mom and dad, and then it was like handed down to one of the kids when they were off at college, and then it came back to mom and dad, and it sat in the garage for fifteen years, and they finally said, "You know, we drive this ten times a year. Let's sell it. We don't need it anymore." And they look at Kelly Blue Book. And Kelly Blue Book says the car is worth, you know, a couple thousand dollars. So they put it out on Craigslist for a couple thousand dollars. And the thing's pristine. It's never spent any time outside. It looks great. You know, you might get lucky and find one of those things. But move quickly if you do, because it won't last long. There's other people like me and other people like you that are looking, and they'll snap that up pretty quick. But anyway, three to 5000 for just kind of a basic driver is possible. Now, when I say driver, I don't mean driver quality like a Haggerty number three condition. This is like Gary driver quality, meaning, yeah, it works. You can drive it. Something might break tomorrow. <laughs> okay. Now, moving up a category, say 5000 to 8000 there's going to be good solid options in that range. Again, maybe some of these great family hand-me-downs that I just mentioned. But I would look for something probably in that price range for myself and try to pay in that range. I wouldn't necessarily stick to the range because you never know what you're going to find. And if you've got plenty of time, if you've got months to look, okay, you know, you'll eventually find something in that price range. Now, if you're looking for something really nice, something that's more of a, what I would consider a near perfect example, you're going to be somewhere between eight to $12,000. 
Now, in a recent Craigslist ad, I found a 1988 Dodge Raider in Oregon City, Oregon. The posting on it has expired just recently, but they were asking $12,000, and this car had 125,000 miles on it. Let me just read the ad to you. So, 1998 Dodge Raider, black with a tan interior. Inside and out is exceptional condition. I have not seen a nicer Dodge Raider. Of course, everybody says that, right? Four-cylinder engine completely rebuilt by Oregon Engine Rebuilders in Sandy, Oregon. The engine ran great prior to rebuild, no issues, just wanted a Raider with no future issues. Okay, so if true, they should have receipts for that, and you'd want to double-check that. It says the tires have less than 1,000 miles on them. AC works fine, five-speed transmission, all works great, all original interior in excellent condition, all glass in excellent condition, clean title, custom roof rack, custom front brush guard, additional running lights. I mean, the pictures of this thing look great, and it was (laughs) $12,000. I mean, it's the manual transmission, so it's the right transmission, at least in my opinion, for the four-cylinder. The carpet in the back looked great. Everything looked great, and it had some nice... I usually don't like aftermarket wheels, but these look like they were made for the vehicle. So maybe it is actually a Dodge wheel, but this thing looks great. And if you're looking for one of these that's in perfect condition, this would be a great option, especially with the rebuilt engine, if it can be proven with receipts. Now that was up for a month and the ad came down. It was never deleted. So I don't know if the vehicle actually sold. And I assume maybe it didn't because... It's the kind of vehicle where, you know, you're getting up towards $12,000 and you're thinking, well, I could get a Jeep Wrangler TJ. There's a lot more of them. There's a lot more parts, uh, more availability, that sort of thing. Huge uh, support for that vehicle that you're not going to have as much of on the Raider, okay? But that doesn't mean the Raider wouldn't be a great example. So hmm, if this pops back up, you might want to check Portland Oregon Craigslist in a week or two and see if the thing pops back up. It might be out there. I would definitely check this one out. And beyond that range, beyond that eight to $12,000 range, you get above that. Like I said, if you're looking in that range and you're thinking, well, I'm going to spend 15000 Oh my God. Again, Jeep Wrangler TJ territory. You, you know, for 15000 16000 you might be able to find yourself a, a decent Rubicon. Oh, come on. I think I'd rather have that. So I think 12000 would be the top that I would pay. You know, I might pay a little bit more if I found one that was perfect if I was looking. But that's kind of the top in my personal opinion. But no matter what you choose, a Dodge Raider or a Mitsubishi two-door Montero is a great option. Again, I would stick with the V6. You get the better suspension in the back. You get the trailing arms with the coil springs. And you get a little bit more horsepower which comes in handy driving on-road or off-road, and the mileage doesn't really suffer that much. You're not going to get great fuel economy. It's going to be, again, you know, 18 miles per gallon, probably all day long, (laughs) unless the thing has, you know, bad rings or it's got some sort of problem. But I would expect, you know, mid to high teens for fuel economy. Okay, so that wraps up this final Little Weirdos 4x4 edition episode on the Rugged Dodge Raider. Another outstanding small 4x4 SUV from the 80s and 90s that provides Jeep-like off-road capability with a relatively cheap price. 
The Raider, along with the Geo Tracker, the Daihatsu Rocky, and the Suzuki Samurai are the type of small, boxy 4x4 that no longer exist, but maybe should. That's because all four of these agile little SUVs, with their manual transmissions, minimal features, and part-time four-wheel drive systems, provide an analog experience that you just won't find in today's 4x4s. Now, from a comfort standpoint, that's probably a good thing. But from a connection to the world standpoint, I think we've lost something in our effort to isolate ourselves from the elements. But don't worry, because any of these four little weirdos 4x4s will hook you up with nature in a hands-on, wind-in-your-face way that's refreshing. Especially in a world where car makers are constantly trying to make things as hands-free as possible. Look, humans are amazing, right? We can come up with some pretty amazing technology when we put our minds to it. But we humans also have pretty amazing stuff inside that's standard equipment from the factory. Things like passion, wonder, and joy. The types of things you get to experience while splashing through an oversized mud puddle in your 4x4 with the windows down and the top off, or using it to drive out into the wilderness and pitch your tent on the edge of a canyon just to watch the sky turn every shade of red as the sun goes down beyond the horizon. You don't need a high-tech, fancy 4x4 SUV to enjoy these things. And besides, not everyone can afford a new SUV that costs tens of thousands of dollars. And that's why I do this podcast. But if you have at least a few thousand dollars to spend and the time to search, you can find a good driver quality example of one of these small 4x4s that will hook you up with nature in a way that will make you smile. So what are you waiting for? Go find your little weirdo 4x4 and have some fun. It's time. You deserve it. And with that, thanks for listening to this week's episode. And if you haven't subscribed to Better Than New yet, please do so so I can keep bringing you reviews of cool used cars, trucks, and SUVs available at a price you'll love. And until next time, I'm Gary Crenshaw, this is Better Than New, and I'm really glad you came along for the ride. <laughs>